I want to win again for sure, but like my next goal is, is Bathurst. Now that uh, emphasis on that raises and I need to try and get that done. When I first took over the team at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, uh, weren't especially rosy, but we managed to win a, a race with Chaz Mostert that year in, in July and I thought, gee, this caper's bloody easy. Hey, I'm David Reynolds from Penrite Racing and this is Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars, Tony Whittle and Craig Ravel. It's in December. This will be our last regular news segment for the year as we head into uh, the Christmas break. And, uh, of course, it's uh, another big year and more news still coming. Craig, I imagine you've seen all the things that have happened in the last few weeks or week or so is the end of Alex Premer's uh, career with Scotty McLaughlin and, and DJR Team Penske. Bit sad. I mean, uh, Alex brought a bit of internationalism to the paddock, and there's not much of it nowadays, as you well well know. Yeah, he's. I've always found him to be a, a great guy to to deal with. It's going to be sad if he doesn't get another drive, because I think in the years he's been out here, he has been more than more than capable of mixing it still with the rest of the supercars paddock. I know people have said, "Oh, yes, but he was a second slower here and a tenth slower there." But if you look at his record, he went with Shane Van Gisbergen for one year. They won the Pertec Cup. Uh, and they were a chance for all of the uh, Pertec Cup races. And then, of course, he's had success. He's got surfboards. He's got a Bathurst Peter Brock trophy and um, has done extremely well at the Sandown 500. So by any yeah. measure, he has been one of the most successful drivers in uh, in the field, considering he's got two Pertec Cups and uh, a number of trophies to his name. So I am sure that there will be some interesting him up and down the grid. It's just whether it's worth his while coming out from America to still be part of it. I guess that is a question that will be answered in the near future. The other interesting item is that there's a lot of speculation about what might be happening at Erebus with Luke Yildon going. But even before the Prema story broke, they made the announcement that Will Brown's shifting cars and going to run with David Reynolds, which is an eye to the future, as I'm sure you would understand, Tony. And coming into the team is Brody Kostecki, who most of us will agree is the most talented of the two brothers and cousin that get into the race car. Indeed. And, and one of the sad, lacking ones that didn't get an enduro drive, and, you know, obviously he had that uh, Pertec drive with uh, the family team, and which was terrific to see. And, and while they didn't get ultimate success, they certainly showed that they were well and truly capable of putting out a team and being on the grid. Um, OK, so the other part of the news with the DJR Tim Penske was that Tim Slade has been picked up. Of course, he uh, has lost his drive at Brad Jones after five or six years, uh, it's uh, certainly great to see that he's got a good co-drive and moving into the co-driver role, but uh, he's certainly someone who's well and truly. He was on the podium at his last race as a full-timer, but, you know, such is the life. And speaking of the end of uh, uh, drivers' careers, of course, the, uh, the big one uh, was Steve Richards stepping back, something that I don't think many of us saw. But Steve Richards, of course, uh, uh, five Bathurst wins, a, a, a brilliant career, and uh, he's now going to become the commercial manager at Team 18. Uh, with their two-car team, they obviously have a greater need for more budget and uh, all those things. So with Scotty Pye 
joining Mark Winterbottom, they'll be looking for a pair of co-drivers now, not just the one. So uh, that's uh, certainly wonderful news. I'm sure you would have found Steve uh, one of the, uh, the strong men over the years in the series. There were two women who actually always stood out in my, uh, my lifetime around supercars. They were Angela Richards and Jane Seaton. And they were two stylish, lovely women who always uh, showed a great deal of care for me. And uh, I think it's a measure of blokes. And I'm sure you would agree that uh, Steve Richards and uh, Glenn Seaton were two of the, the, the big men of the paddock, that they uh, were always people who showed a great deal of care for other people around them. So it's, uh, it's certainly good to see him staying around and close to the thing. But the biggest news of the week was uh, around the uh, Holden nameplate um, that uh, they've made the decision that uh, the Commodore since uh, its years since 1978 when it rolled out on the paddock um, is no longer going to be there after 2022 I think it is so 2021 will be its last season as a race uh, car for Holden in Australia they made the decision not to race the Camaro whether it's badges of Holden or a Chev quite amazing news it certainly uh, uh, as you well know, the uh, things around Holden have not been good in recent years. They, they've well and truly dropped out of the top ten of sales. That uh, in Australia is a commercial. Uh, they're having problems with the name, and there's now a question of whether the Holden brand lives on. You know, nowadays it's called is um, just bolted onto various imports, nothing locally made anymore, and uh, it's a very sad time. I I sort of feel that uh, Commodore made its name with uh, Marlboro on its side and Peter Bock behind the wheel, but by Jesus, they've got some results on that uh, on that car, haven't they? They've got an amazing legacy that they will have with the Commodore, and we'll see in time. Ford didn't try to play around with the Falcon name. They immediately uh, retired it, if you like to use that word. Holden took a lot of criticism for putting the Commodore name on an imported vehicle that was uh, a very big departure from what the Commodore had been. So perhaps it's the inevitable conclusion to the decision of offshore, offshore manufacturing. We'll just have to see how it all pans out. If they're going to focus on SUVs and utes, then the relevance of supercars is going to be questioned. And if the Camaro doesn't become the Generation 3 car, there'll be further questioning of Holden's motorsport involvement. Now, at this point in time, just like they said with local manufacturing or the demise of local manufacturing, we're in the game for the long haul. But uh, we're in motorsport for another two years. That's what the contract says. And I think all bets are off on year three. All right. Well, that's certainly... uh Big news, sad news, and uh, it's all part of life. Nothing stays the same forever. So This week we commence our father's series with a father who at one stage had two sons racing in supercars against each other, Richard Davison. Then, later in the show, we'll hear from two brothers who saw the end of an era for their team at Newcastle. Of course, I'm talking about the Kelly brothers, and I think you enjoyed their reflections on the 
final round for the Nissan Altima. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Still a bit in shock. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks everyone. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Got to put money back into the sport at the lower levels to develop the kids and bring them up. You can't rely upon good luck for Daniel Ricciardo's old man to have found a few mates that tip some money in and send him overseas. There actually needs to be a structure. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Hi, I'm Jack LeBrock from Truck Assist Techno Racing. Welcome to Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars. I'm with Richard Davison. We're at the Phillip Island. It's not the uh, Island Magic. It's the... uh, Festival of uh, Historical Heritage this weekend, and uh, Richard is racing his Formula Ford, which is a RF eighty nine Van Diemen. Eighty nine Van Diemen, indeed. Which uh, you uh, love that car, and it's one of your favourites of all time. I understand. Well, the older I get, the faster I'm going, right? And the better I was, but no, look, it's uh, I'm running in what is classified as historic Formula Ford, yep. which is cars built before. 1990, pre-1990. Uh, there are three divisions within uh, historic form of Ford, FA, FB, FC, depending on the year they were built. So FC is the division I'm in, which is the later cars, I think from 84 to 89. Okay. Of course, um, this is the 50th year of Formula Ford celebration. Uh, it is a, indeed. It's uh, extraordinary to think, you know, I ran Formula Ford back in 1975 and uh, to think here I am again. <laughs> Is that 45 years later? I'm not sure. <laughs> Running Formula Ford again, but just having an absolute ball and, right. and loving every minute of it. And uh, You had a, a great start to the year up at the 12-hour weekend. You had uh, three podiums. Well, three wins, actually, because the, wins, uh, right. the, the guys that beat me, that, that ran one and two, were in contemporary cars. Yep. So they were in modern cars, um, and you had to add their ages together and add another 20 years on to actually get to my age so so it was great i led a lot of laps and uh it was a lot of fun to run with those young guys they were very respectful looked after me a bit um my car had very good straight line handling uh, i think the early cars because we're all running the same kent motor i think the early cars are narrower and i think penetrate the air a little bit better so they just weren't able to shake me enough over the top to get a big enough gap so I wouldn't be all over them again up and down the straights. But it was it was great fun. And having three wins there, for the 50th year, they've actually produced a little um, a little laurel wreath sticker and everybody that wins a race gets a little laurel wreath sticker with first on it that oh. you then put on your car. So I've actually got three laurel wreath stickers now because I won the, the, the three out of three races up there. Now, the Davidson name uh, to our listeners, of course, will be well known, not only... Uh the latter years because of his two sons, his father as well and his mother, um, all uh, carried the name and winning lots of things. So what was the first time you went to a racetrack you have a memory of? I think it was Warwick Farm. Uh, I would have been six or seven years of age, I would think, uh, early 60s. And I have this vivid memory of we're all staying in this motel that was opposite the Warwick Farm circuit and it had a swimming pool in the front 
and they were all these world champions, which meant nothing to me at the time, all yeah. doing bombs and being into the pool and being stupid and the, the manager of the hotel coming out and screaming and yelling at all these guys to you know, behave themselves. And I'm, you know, I think it was Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart and Graham Hill and, of course, Lex. And, and uh, that's the first recollection I have of being at a, at a, at a motor race. Okay, all right. Um, so you were led into the sport by your father. Um, sort of. Sort of. Um, he died in what year was it? Well, he died in 1965 and I was 10 years of age. So um, you, you did all your racing without him around? Well, not only without him around, uh, I'm sure any dad or kid that's in karting today, you very much rely on that father-son relationship to actually even get into the sport. Yep. Because you start in go-karts and, you know, dad drags your cart all around the all around the countryside and prepares it and does all that sort of thing. So I didn't have any father, so I didn't have any guidance. Probably, if anything, some negatives from family. And I sort of fell into it just by, by circumstance, really. And I didn't start until I was 21, where a chance meeting with a guy by the name of Rhett Parker, who was racing a Elfin 600 Formula Ford back then, um, sort of said he was going to sell his car and some stupid reason I said oh I could be interested and went out to Calder and did a few laps in it and said yep I like this and and that was it from that day I was hooked but I had had no one helping me I had no support probably a lot of expectation because of the name and you know the best I could do was kick the tyres and just get in and drive this thing so it wasn't the ideal entry into motorsport I think there are a lot of young guys probably the same as me back then but uh um, it wasn't it was all, was, wasn't all beer and skittles. I can but it was it. a more forgiving in some ways, though. You were, you could allowed to make mistakes almost then. Yeah, look, I think so. There wasn't obviously. I mean, the, the pressure the young kids are under today to to not only be winning, they're all running with professional teams. Um, the cost is just you know outrageous. Um, but it is the way it is. It's not a complaint. It's just a fact of life. Yep. Um, you know, it was still very much a father and son sort of activity back then, you know, a bit like karting is today. Dad had, you know, Dad had towed the, the car to the racetrack and friends and family had helped prepare it and, uh, and, and away we went racing. Now, one of the things that happened very early on for both your sons, first of all, Alex, and then Will, was that uh, you had met up with uh, Mick and Maria Ritter and uh, that was a very fortunate thing for them. And well, look, many other young men. Yeah, well, look, I, I mean, obviously that was mutually beneficial, and, and that was when uh, we were looking to get Alex into Formula Ford. Uh, he'd you know, come through karting, and we wanted to make, make the next step. I'd been away from it for so long, I honestly knew nothing about it back then. It had changed dramatically. And I, I did a deal with a local uh, Victorian-based guy by the name of Ray Cutchie, who ran a little race team, and his son was racing to run a few race state races with Alex. And, um, I mean, this is not a reflection on Ray, but Ray was very busy looking after his son, and I found myself at race meetings with, unfortunately, a lot of the state race meetings conflicted with national rounds, sort of doing it all myself, totally out of my depth. Uh, And I made the decision there and then, it was actually a blessing in disguise, I made the decision now and then, there and then, if we're going to do this thing, we're either going to do it properly or we're not going to do it all. Um, so I just started asking around. Um, I, I knew of Tubby Ritter back in the old days. Yep. I can't profess to have really known Tubby. Uh, 
sure we'd met here and there. Um, but uh, I start asking around and the name Michael Ritter just kept popping up. Uh, he'd been in England, he'd worked with Swift, I think, and then, then uh, after that Van Diemen um, with the factory. Uh, he was working with a guy by the name of Dougal McDougal. Um, he was employed full-time by the McDougals and, you know, being looked after quite well. Um, but I, I, I called him one day and introduced myself. I'd never met him before. And pretty much sort of said, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And he said, oh, Richard, you know, my ambition one day is to, to run my own team. Uh, but he said, you know, I just simply don't have the resources or, you know, the, the wherewithal to do it. And believe you me, I was running on just about zero financially back then. And I won't go into that story because it sounds like a hard luck story. It's not. Yeah. It's just a fact of life. But I didn't have the money to go and fund the whole thing. But I'd, I'd, I'd developed an association with Gary Dumbrell, who's obviously Paul's dad and Lucas's dad, um, which is a bit like jumping in the bed with the devil, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have this sort of love-hate relationship with Gary, but at the end of the day, he was looking to try and further Paul. Paul had started go-karting. Yep. And maybe he saw me as a bit of a, a trailblazer that might help Paul move to the next stage. You know, the bottom line is that um, Gary agreed to buy go halves in a car mm-hmm. and we bought the car that Garth Tander was just winning the Formula Ford Championship in in 1997. Yep. So I went up to Oran Park to conclude that deal um, and take delivery of the car as it rolled off the track because I was not going to allow that car to leave my sight. Uh, Mick Ritter was up there uh, looking after Dougal McDougal. Anyway, cut a long story short because I'm rambling a bit. Um, Gary agreed to sponsor Alex for the next season. Now, I sort of heard stories that Gary wasn't the best player around town and I couldn't afford to... This is wins, isn't it? This was back in the wins days, yes. yes. And uh, so I was slightly nervous and so was Michael Ritter. I was sort of saying to Michael, well, look, here's the undertaking I've been given. Um, but he couldn't afford to give up the very good job he was on on the, on the hope that uh, you know we'd get paid. So the bottom line is probably one of my smarter, smarter deals is I did a, a, came to an arrangement with Gary where Michael actually went onto his payroll. Uh-huh. So he couldn't not pay. Right. Um, and that was the way we got that going um, through Michael's association with the Blanchards because he helped John, John Jr. Yes. when he was running in Formula Ford. Uh, we were virtually given a little factory uh, in Box Hill uh, where the Blanchards... Um, business is still located. Yep. I think we're paying $100 a month or something towards the, just go towards the power. And um, so I did the deal with Michael on the basis that his wage was sort of guaranteed because he was on the on the on the, the Dumbrell's payroll, and then we worked our backsides off to try and raise money to run the car, which to a significant extent was funded by the fact that we ran two cars. We ran a second car that we didn't own, it was by the, uh, owned by the driver that drove it, and what he was paying us to prepare and transport his car, si- fairly significantly subsidised. Um, and who was that? I knew you were going to ask me that question, I can't remember just okay. at the moment, All right, cool. but it was an identical RF95 yep. uh, Van Diemen, it was, I, I think it was actually the ex-Mark Weber car, um, his name will come to me in a moment. Yep. Um, so off we went racing, we also managed through 
my cousin John Benson, who's just a great, always been a great supporter of the boys and fan. He he went around and knocked on the door, literally of the uh, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, and you know we raised five grand here and five grand there. And as it turned out, uh, and we also then met uh, met a, f- a fellow who at the time was running OAMPS Insurances, who were helping Christian Jones, Alan's yes. son, and uh, befriended him. And he also came on board as a sponsor. Which there's another story there again, which I, I won't go into. So the deal with Michael, anyway, was Michael, we'll, uh, I'll help get this team going. We went and bought all the ex Alan Jones Formula Ford equipment because he'd been yes. running his own team, and yep. at that point it had folded. So we got we got scales, ramps, uh, all the fit out of the truck, everything for I, th- I think it was five grand or something. Oh, right. yeah, it was. But I borrowed the money to buy that. I literally yeah. borrowed the money. We went and bought a truck from the Noskies, yep. um, and that was on the drip also, leased over five years or something. Um, and uh, and away we went. And the deal with Michael was look, once Alex is through and. At that stage, I didn't know about Will, you know, but I, let's assume Will's going to come through. Once the boys are through, um, you know, I, I, I'll hand over the business to you. The only thing you'll have to pay me for is just any assets that, that I've owned, any tools or equipment or whatever that I own. Uh, and that's pretty much the way it worked out. Um, so, you know, both the boys uh, ran with Sonic and, of course, uh, subsequently many other yeah. champions but you, you underwrote the starting of the most successful Formula 4 team in Australian history totally, so. totally. but, yeah. but I've got to tell you a lot of wishes and prayers going on there it was all done it was a bit well, like they worked they it, worked. it worked and, yeah. and look you know I have now have this lifelong uh, friendship with uh, Michael and Maria but believe you me in the early days got quite testy at it times did. Did. Um, sure. and now we just uh, Michael uh, when I bought this RF89 Van Diemen, it, 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 needed, it needed some TLC. I took it down to Sonic. It's really out of Michael's league because he's, you know, he's running modern cars and he said, no, 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 we want to do it. And they were, they put a lot of time and effort into it and came to me at the end and said, Richard, effectively, this is sort of our way of saying thank you. Uh, and, you know, I just basically paid out of pocket expenses and I was quite taken aback, to be honest yeah. with you. And that's only three years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a pretty significant part of, um, you know, our lives and obviously the way the boys got their start. Okay. I wanted to go back to Formula Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you were running again a, a mutual great friend of ours, Ron Badley, in those indeed, days. yes, indeed. Uh, Ron, who went on to a very successful career in Indy cars and then, then he had even more success as a father of a golfer. Indeed. Your I'm boys so didn't hit the golf bug, though. No, I'm sort of starting to wonder why we can go down that path sometimes. But, but anyway... Um, and uh, so from Formula Ford, uh, you had some terrific years running the national championship around the country mm-hmm. and, you know, going from meeting to meeting and wondering if you're going to make the next one and all those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you had these two young boys and you take them to some meetings and mm-hmm. not others, I imagine. Well, Formula Ford, they weren't born when I was running Formula Ford. Oh, right. Of so course, yeah. I finished Formula Ford in 78. Yep. Uh, had a year off in 79 while Jim Hardman was building a Formula 2 car for me, which I then campaigned in You commissioned in that car? Yes. Okay. Yes. So he came to you with the idea of it? Uh, look, it was one of those circum- circumstances. Jim was working on my brother John's Formula 5000, so I sort of... So and I was a T332? Indeed. And I was the official uh, wheel cleaner. 
um, which I don't think I ever did quite to John's standards. But <laughs> I'm uh, sure most people wouldn't have. Yeah. And Jim was also helping uh, Peter Lana. He'd sort of redesigned a lot of the March, I think it was, or Elfin. I can't remember that Peter was running very successfully. And, you know, we just, one thing led to another. Another, we got chatting. Jim had spent a lot of time, uh, knew the guy building the Argo F3 cars because uh, Jim had come back from working in F3 and other categories with Alan Jones and, and others. Uh, did quite a bit of driving himself. Anyway, cut a long story short, Jim said, look, I'd like to build a car. Uh, I guess this is a bit of the precursor to the Sonic thing, really. And I said, OK, well... I want to go F2 racing because um, F2 at that point, Formula 5000, was coming to an end. Uh, Australian F2 was sort of looking like being the premier category there. So, 1600? 1600 uh, uh, single cam, yeah, yeah, or push rod as was yes. mine because we ran a Ford engine, didn't have a single cam. So Jim built, designed and built the car but used a lot of Argo componentry, if you like. Yeah. Um, uh, that I guess alleviated the need for him to be casting uprights and things. He was able to buy a lot of the, a lot of the stuff from Argo and then you know put his very much his own signature on it. And uh, so that was for the 1980 season. And you know together we we went and won the the, the Australian Formula Two Championship in 1980. So that was you know definitely one of the highlights of my motor racing career because after that I had to start getting serious about earning a living. By then I had one young son and soon to be a second and uh, so my motor racing sort of ebbed and flowed a bit in the years following that. That sort of period was the last real hurrah for wings and slick open wheelers. I mean, okay, Formula Ford has not, you know, flourished in the last 10 years or so, but certainly still been there. We've had, you know, stillborn attempts at Formula 4, but that sort of period when you were building a Formula 2 car from a scratch sort of thing, that's the last sort of time we really had decent Formula open wheel racing, wasn't it? Yeah, well, look, Formula Atlantic stroke Pacific stroke Mondial, whatever name you'd like to put on it, yeah. uh, then emerged in, I think it was 81, yes. and was very strong for two or three years. Uh, but, look, unfortunately, because I'm an open-wheeler fan, I love them, it's the purest form of the sport, this country has always struggled to, uh, I guess, uh, um, have enough money in the pool to, to run open wheelers at, at that level yeah. um, and and you know the reality is also as the 70s rolled on into the 80s touring car racing started to become more and more popular and it became just even more difficult um, you know the international series of the Tasman and so forth the 60s and 70s had, had disappeared and that was probably the biggest thing that kept a, a big interest in um in open wheeler racing you may not know that the reason that those 1980s that, 80 through to 84 um, were at Calder was because the AGP ran as a warm-up to the Sandown 500 in 1979 and uh, Cams went to Bob Jane and said we'd rather have our own event and mm. even if it's a goat track <coughs> yeah. we'll call it. But it was, I mean it meant that it was at least a showcase to race as oh, it should Oh absolutely have been. and I was fortunate enough because after F2 I then bought an RT4 Rolt car that Bruce Allison had brought into the country and did had had full of races. He brought it in new and I bought it from him at the end of uh, 1981. So I campaigned that that with the assistance of Clive Millis uh, in 82. By the end of 82, we'd sort of run out of money. But I ran the 82 Grand Prix at Calder. 
I then leased the car to Bob Jane for the 83 Grand Prix and uh, Jeff Brabham drove it that year and then I made a comeback in 84 and ran it at the 84 Grand Prix uh, and they were for, you know, for, for us Aussies to be able to be sitting on the grid uh, you know, against Nicky Lauder against Alain Prost uh, and drivers of that calibre was, you know, I mean it was a, a massive buzz but we're also competing effectively in the same equipment so um, you know, my last race in 84 at the Grand Prix, you know, I, I finished six, I think, it, uh, pretty much alongside Keki Rosberg. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that was, that was, that was, that was a, a big buzz and they were great days. And, um, and, and Formula Atlantic then also became the main support category for the Grand Prix in Adelaide. The first two Grand Prix, 85 and 86, I ran uh, the Atlantic car. Uh, in 85 and 86 Were they at, good at fields there? Very, very good fields, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it fell away. You know, they were very good fields cause, because it was the Grand Prix. Yes. The actual gold star by then was really starting to struggle and the yeah. fields were, were, were okay. pretty small. All right, well, now let's fast forward to uh, Alex and Will have uh, come into and gone out of Formula Ford. Um, and both of them, in their own way, have carved careers. Uh, you're, you're most famous for that time when you did show up with the... Uh, the, the shirts cut in half vertically and wearing the colours of both your sons when they, one was uh, driving Stone Brothers and the other one was at Tickford, is that right? Uh, HRT. HRT, yes. So you were not only two different uh, teams but two different uh, brands of cars, yeah. Indeed. Tough times, I mean, you know, dividing your loyalties. I'm sure you were running from one to the other. Yeah, look, you could say tough times, but I think when I look back, probably the most ex- you know, exciting times of my life, really, yeah, to yeah. see both your boys running professionally um, you know being paid well to do what they do for me it was a feeling of great achievement to have got them to, to got them that far I suppose um, and that was just a, that was just just a bit of fun my way of trying to chill out because I do get incredibly intense <laughs> when I'm watching the boys I get intense when I'm racing myself but I get a lot more intense as a lot of people will tell you, the, the consumption of red wine leading up to the start of the eight races usually goes up quite significantly. Well, you know, <laughs> the wonderful thing is that both of them, in their own ways, have certainly held the Davison name up and, and done proud of, you know, their grandfather. Oh, I couldn't be more proud, Tony, yeah. but I'd be proud of them if they were ballet dancers, mate. <laughs> the fact that they're both, uh, you know, made, uh, carved out their own niche in... in, in world and, and Australian motor racing um, uh, you know is something that um, you know they've got now for the rest of their lives uh, but for me it's just something I'm extraordinarily proud of. Have you raced uh, I'm sorry have you watched uh, Alex race overseas so did you go and see him? Yeah yeah um, when he first went to to Germany um, and that was you know I guess a story on, on its own because he'd finished runner-up in the Australian Formula 4 championship by the narrowest ever margin I think it was two points in 1999 and Porsche Cars Australia were looking for effectively uh, a cadet if you like someone to mentor and he was selected Um, I don't know how the process came about but he wanted to continue an open wheelers but effectively we got an offer for him to go to Germany and and be employed and paid by Porsche to to race cars with him it was sort of just one of those offers you you, know, you couldn't refuse, although he would have loved to have stayed in open wheelers. Well, he was, of course, the first of now. We've had Matt Campbell and, mm. and Jackson Evans both follow in that same 
Huh? You're right. Look, you know, Alex, I feel sorry for him in, in many respects because he was always the trailblazer, keeping in mind that he had to go and do the shootout for the Porsche Junior role, having come out of Formula Ford. He yeah. had never driven a Porsche <laughs> when he went and did that shootout. Um, you know, the other two fellows you mentioned are just taking nothing away from their yes, achievements, but they, but they did the, you know, the, the second string uh, Porsche series and then they did Australian yeah. Career Cup. By the time they went there, they were ex- you know, ex- extremely well, well prepared. Yeah, yeah. Um, but look, he still made his mark there. He won quite a few races. Uh, he, he ran Super Cup. Uh, and look, it got to, I think, uh, 04, 05, where he, it was when Porsche were not particularly active in motorsport it was getting you know there were still opportunities for him there but they weren't doing the whole um you know world endurance championship and so forth so there were limited opportunities for him to move up the tree and um uh, so he decided to come back to australia uh, ran in career cup in 04 and won the championship against jim richards who was just the absolute king back then so yeah. it really was a changing of the guard um, and uh, and and was then um, uh, was then brought into V8s by Larry Perkins. That's another story again, which I won't go into in this in this yes. conversation. But uh, not, not a not a not a happy association whatsoever. Um, so went back to Europe in in 08, um, and then got the call from um, from Ross Stone to come join Stone Brothers, which he did on a three-year deal so I went over there several times while he was there from 2000 to 2004 probably once or twice a year maybe I I made trips just for specific races but then just last year he went uh, was signed to do the world endurance championship uh, in a in a Porsche so last year I had the fantastic experience of um, going to Le Mans 24 hours and the uh, six hours of Silverstone and that was uh, a huge buzz, massive buzz. It won Super Cup races and importantly probably became the very first Australian to win in Indianapolis in a Super Cup. It wasn't a 500 race, but you know, it was massive win. Oh, look, absolutely. And at at that point he was, you know, very much holding his own. He only only came into the Super Cup series sort of partway through the season. And I think in the last five races of Super Cup, and I'm thinking it was 04, he was the points leader or winner if you just took the last five races, which he which he did. So uh, had several wins and you know, numerous podiums, and uh, so he had really sort of established his credentials in Porsches at that point, anyway. Indeed, and not only has Alex given you sort of a Super Cup wins and Will's given you Bathurst wins, you've also got two wonderful grandchildren with Melanie, your daughter-in-law. Um, uh, Absolutely, and, and uh, wonderful to have uh, also healthy and fit and not future racing driver there. Do you think too early to uh, say? Certainly, I think if you ask Melanie, it'd be definitely no. If you ask <laughs> Alex, probably no. Uh, but uh, you know, you never know. Lily and Luke, they're they're beautiful kids. Unfortunately for me, they live in Queensland, so I don't see them nearly as often uh, as I'd like to. Um, but uh, in fact, Alex called me yesterday and said, We think of coming down to Easter. We've just finished building a new home down in Flinders and said, You know, we'd like to come spend Easter with you, which would just be fantastic. I think you've got a little bit of room there for them. I think so. Yeah. I'll find some. Well, thank you very much, Richard Davison, for joining us on Inside Supercars. It's a, it's a wonderful story. And uh, at some other stage through the year, we'd like to actually talk about 
you know, those times when your sons first got into supercars, because that in itself is something quite different, isn't it, when they're, they're fronting up on such a competitive series? Oh, look, absolutely. And again, keeping in mind that it was never their preferred option. Yeah. Uh, you know, they wanted, to, wheelers, yeah. they wanted to get through the system, and we tried very hard with Will. Um, I'd, I'd love to see them both in open wheelers as well, <laughs> um, but unfortunately not in this country it's going to happen. Really. But look, they, you know, they, they drove in the Enduros together last year. Uh, I'm hoping that's going to reoccur this year. It hasn't been sort of formally announced yet, but it looks like the package Will's going to have this year is, is going to be pretty good, and I'd just love to see them both racing together with you know a reasonable chance of of success or a podium. For me, my, my ambition before it all finishes is to see them both standing on the podium together. Yeah, yeah. And I think with Phil Monday, I mean, he's a, he's a wonderful uh, mentor for them, not that they're young men, but uh, for a team and, and rebuilding. They've had a very tough year last year and it certainly looks like they're in the right car in the right time, so... Hopefully that'll happen. Yeah, look, I've got to take my hat off to Phil. You know, he, he, he basically bought the remnants of uh, LDM, Lucas Dumbrell, uh, and was pretty much just going to sort of put a pay driver in and um, probably, you know, bounce around the back of the field uh, when Will actually called him because he got to the point uh, at the end of 2017 where the options for him had, uh, you know, very much yeah. were looking very slim. And yeah. Phil said... Will, I had no concept in my mind that I'd be able to to um, sign someone like you. Uh, of course, it took a complete turn of his budgeting because it went from potentially bringing a driver in who was going to bring six or seven or eight hundred thousand dollars versus bringing a driver in who he, who, who was going to have to pay. But so so that was a big leap of faith for Phil and. Uh, um, you know, I just hope as much as anything for, for us and for, for Will and hopefully Alex that it really works for Phil because he deserves it. All right. Well, that's Inside Supercars this week with Richard Davison. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. After the break, it's Todd and Rick Kelly recorded on the morning of their final race. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. This year in Formula 3, I think, is a fantastic environment for me to be doing that. However, I believe for myself, uh, a sustainable career in tin tops such as best of the cars in Australia is where I see myself. Second crack at the Australian time since we've been back and we unlucky the first time that we end up with a win there at Freeway City uh, two weeks ago. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation, post your thoughts on our Facebook page and to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Tony Delberto from Shell V-Power Racing. Welcome to Inside Supercars. It's a bit of a sad day really, the end of an era, the amount of work that's gone into this into this car. Um, you know, it's been a, a hell of a journey and it's really what's made the team what it is. The, the learnings and experience we've, we've gained through that process is something that not many teams at all um, get to do so it's really built our engineering team and and our knowledge which will carry us into the future with any project that we we end up with so our production and everything it works geared up around being able to do what we've done with the Nissan so um, you know as far as the whole thing and where it's put us as a team I think it's been a success and um, to get an engine that's out of a Nissan Patrol road car to be competitive in pit lane when others have come in and out and dropped off and now um, we're back to the old you know two valve pushrod engine it's really 
uh, an achievement for us and, and a little bit of a shame that as we change the, the trajectory of our sport, it's, it's done a U-turn back to where it was six years ago. So it's good to have been a part of that and a part of um, you know, trying to, to make the change and develop something new into supercars. When you think of what you've built in the way of skill sets and even your own development, it must be a, a sense of pride. Yeah, it is. And it's a little bit hard because people don't generally see what what that means and what goes on behind the scenes all they see is the result at each track at the end of the day but to see over the years the dyno curves example um, each time we present the engine to supercars and how we've improved that and in the end designed and cast our own cylinder heads and all those things are, are a huge achievement but no one no one sees that they just see the the track side of it so in an engineering sense it's been it's been massive and it's certainly what um, you know, has made the team what it is, which, you know, there's, there's no regrets at all. And we've really enjoyed every moment of working with Nissan and, and being a factory team through that period. If there was a body shape and Nissan support, where do you think that engine now would put you with the right, with the right package? Because you started off with the best era, well, not the best engine, you've now flipped. Yeah, well, the engine is 100% on the money. Um, and it's and it's reliable, and um, the design of this engine, you know, allows it to run probably almost twice the k's of what other engines in the series do between rebuilds. So that's absolutely spot on. It'd be great to keep that in the car. Um, and aerodynamically, you know, you can see just by looking at the cars now how outdated the Altima is. So if we were able to wrap something like a Mustang body or the ZB body um, in a Nissan around this car, we'd be uh, in a whole different situation to what we are now. Rick, what did the partnership with Nitsen mean for the team and its corporate relationships and the way it's then built up that side of the business? Uh, it meant a lot. Obviously, there's a, you know, a lot of companies out there um, love to be involved in supercars and they generally like to be involved um, with the factory team because of, the, I guess, the status it carries, but also the flow on and business-to-business -business opportunities um, from their point of view as well. But um, you know, that, that's been great and it's been great for us to work with a, a manufacturer as closely as what we did for what is now eight years but it's also probably a time for us to acknowledge the work that not only Nissan put in but all the people along the way. There's a lot of people in the garage here that have been part of it the entire time but there's a lot of guys and girls that aren't with us anymore that have put in a fair bit of um, work into the Nissan program. We've had obviously so many messages over the last um, week of people <laughs> wishing as well for, for this weekend and I guess um, reminiscing and acknowledging the work that they put in as well and, and sponsors as well. We've had a lot of people um, along the way that have joined the program. So I think everyone's um, keenly watching on this weekend, seeing the cars run around for their final time. What piece of the car is going to be your keepsake as a paperweight on the desk? Well, hopefully a whole car. Over the, over the years, um, through necessity, every car and every engine we've built, we've had to sell to, to fund building the new one. And I've said to Rick, it'd be great to end up in a situation um, where we could keep one of our cars just to have, because in 10 years' time, uh, you know, that'd be something that we, we'll really regret not doing if we can't achieve that. So uh, we sold our la very last two Holden engines just earlier this year, our two best Holden engines. So we've got absolutely nothing left of Holden now. And I'd hate to see the same thing for, for the Nissan. But we do have one of these Nissan engines in our ski race boat, which isn't going anywhere, so that's probably all we'll end up with. There's obviously been some frustrations on the way, but what lessons do you think you've learned going into the Mustang project from this? Um, I have to be careful here, but 
basically what we entered into and, and what it ended up turning into um, at launch with the engines and um, you know what, what we expected and were told and what happened are two different things. So we had to react, we had no choice but to spend a heap of money and do a, a lot of R&D and development to, to overcome the engine deficiency bringing a road car engine in. Um, I wouldn't say it's naive as it's turned out, but that's probably the only, only lesson is to, um, if we ever had to do that again, it would be a, a lot different situation prior to actually entering into a project of that scale. You know, it's massive. These engines are the highest developed engines of their kind alongside NASCAR engines on the planet. Um, and to have to physically get a road car engine to the exact same rules to that limit is, is a massive challenge. So. Um, that's that's one big lesson that I, I wouldn't go diving straight back into a project like that again. Would you just go and do it and then tell them later? Well, it's it's just too expensive and difficult to, to reach the power levels that, under these rules. So the things that I've been an ad advocate for is you know bigger capacity and drive-by wire so that you you can um, you know miss all, all that development and expenditure to achieve exact the exact same thing. You know we could do that tomorrow, but. Um, you know, that's all that was really missing from the start. If we had have been able to have a little bit of compression ratio or a little bit of capacity to overcome the fact that the cylinder head couldn't do what, what the rest of them could do, uh, it would have been a, a good, a good um, situation from the start. So if, if you could do that again with another manufacturer or another engine, a quad cam engine, it would be, it'd be an easy project. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. Tony Whitlock and Craig Ravel. Craig, you've got uh, lots of things to do, no doubt, around house and home. Yes, uh, just coming back from a trip to Adelaide. Quite interestingly, we caught up. I caught up with the editor of Supercar Extra magazine, which is, of course, Adrian Mussolino, a great friend of the program. And we were having a coffee in Stirling and decided to walk down the street because we'd seen a lot of uh, rally cars. And, of course, last weekend you had Rally Adelaide on in Adelaide and then you had the Bend Classic out at Tail and Bend. And we saw a number of cars from both events there, we went for a walk down the street in Stirling and bumped, didn't literally bump into Jim Richards, but did uh, walk past him and said hello and had a quick chat about Stephen stepping down from the uh, supercar driving. And uh, Jim in indicated how tough it is to try and just jump in a car for the three Enduro Cup races. And that was a major part, as we've later found out, from Steve himself is the reason for his decision. But it was good to see uh, Tim Slade running around there along with Todd Hazelwood and a number of other very well-credentialed race car drivers from Australia uh, all being part of what is uh, one of the most, and I think someone mentioned it is now the largest tarmac rally outstripping Target Tasmania, the rally Adelaide. So um, it'll be... Good to see how that progresses, but also just good to see that the supercar drivers are keeping their hand in as well, Tone. All right. Well, speaking of keeping our hands in, well, that's it for another week. And uh, next week on Inside Supercars, we'll hear from Sam DiBasquale. I hope you'll enjoy us again then. You're listening to Inside Supercars. And that's all from me. And good night from him. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device, search Inside Supercars.